You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. My name is Brian Benestad. I'm a professor of theology at the University of Scranton, a Jesuit school in northeastern Pennsylvania. In this course, I'm going to present 12 lectures on the subject of Catholic social teaching or Catholic social thought. Do today's Catholics know anything about the social teachings of the church? Otherwise stated, can a typical member of a Catholic parish give an account of Catholic social teaching? The answer is surely no, but to get the reality of Catholic life, there is another important question to be asked. Do Catholics live in varying degrees in accordance with the social doctrine of the church? I believe that the answer has to be yes for those Catholics who are trying hard to take their faith seriously. Could they be making more of a contribution to the common good if they were better informed? No doubt. But we should not underestimate what practicing Catholics do for the benefit of society. There is no doubt that Catholic social teaching is elusive. The acquisition of this discipline requires at least a knowledge of the Bible, the fathers of the church, especially St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, the papal social encyclicals, Vatican Council II, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the tradition of political philosophy. Then the application to the contemporary scene requires a good knowledge of the society, government, and the history of one's country, as well as the problems in the nations of the world. To say the least, the education in Catholic social teaching is a daunting task requiring a thorough liberal education in addition to serious education and formation in the faith. Since the end of the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church has not been successful in making Catholic social teaching well-known, despite the great efforts and achievements of Pope John Paul II. There has been a lot of talk about social justice in Catholic universities, but in my opinion, has not always been very educational. At any rate, no one would claim that Catholic college graduates have been well-formed in the principles of Catholic social teaching. Since the mid-60s, the American bishops as a national conference have directed most of their efforts to taking positions on public policy with short shrift given to the exposition and explanation of Catholic social teaching. Recently, however, the bishops conference sounded an alarm about Catholic ignorance of the social teaching in a 1998 statement entitled Sharing Catholic Social Teaching Challenges and Directions Reflections of the U.S. Catholic Bishops. They say, quote, our heritage is unknown by many Catholics. Sadly, our social doctrine is not shared or taught in a consistent and comprehensive way in too many of our schools, seminaries, religious education programs, colleges, and universities. One of their solutions is to call for sweeping changes in the curriculum of seminaries and in Catholic schools from K through college. Besides calling for curriculum revisions, the bishops offer a summary of the principles and themes of Catholic social teaching under the following headings. One, the sacredness of life and the dignity of the human person. Two, the social character of the human person. 
quote, call to family, community, and participation. Three, rights and responsibilities. Four, option for the poor and vulnerable. Five, the dignity of work and the rights of workers. Six, international solidarity and care for creation. The bishops also mentioned subsidiarity, more about that later, and the common good. To supplement their presentation, they direct their readers to the new Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1994, the guidelines for the study and teaching of the Church's social doctrine and the formation of priests, a publication put out in 1988 by the Vatican Congregation for Education. And then they also direct attention to their own pastoral message entitled A Century of Social Teaching, published in 1990, and a report issued by a task force set up by the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops. The summary presented by the bishops in 1998 reiterates what they said in A Century of Social Teaching, published on the 100th anniversary of Pope Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum. The latter statement differs only in the order of the themes presented and the addition of the recommendation to exercise stewardship over creation. The bishop's selection and explanation of their themes is a good beginning, but reveals an approach to Catholic social teaching that does not appear to be firmly enough rooted in Augustine, Aquinas, the papal social encyclicals, Vatican Council II, and the tradition of political philosophy. Important elements of Catholic social teaching are not mentioned at all or are so sketchily treated as to be incomprehensible to the lay reader. In this course, I will provide a supplement and at times an alternative to the scholarly paradigms upon which the bishops are relying. I begin my lecture by pointing out two significant differences between the Episcopal statements of 1990 and 1998. There are two late additions to the basic paradigm of Catholic social teaching that were not present in a preliminary draft of the bishop's 1998 statement. The first addition is the last paragraph of the introduction. It reads, quote, our commitment to the Catholic social mission must be rooted in and strengthened by our spiritual lives. In our relationship with God, we experience the conversion of heart that is necessary to truly love one another as God has loved us. Now, this really means that understanding and living Catholic social teaching depends upon living the whole Christian faith. This obvious fact is hardly ever mentioned, yet it cannot be emphasized enough since it is from their faith that most people begin to learn about the meaning of virtue and justice. The education of the mind and heart of people in the truths of the faith is the first and most basic contribution that the family, Catholic schools, and the church make to the common good. We shall reach justice through evangelization, said John Paul II to the Latin American bishops early in 1979. Vatican Council II's Declaration of Religious Liberty says that society itself will benefit from the goods of justice and peace which result from the people's fidelity to God and his holy will. The other addition to the social justice paradigm occurs under the heading of the life and dignity of the human person. The text mentions the evils of abortion, assisted suicide, the death penalty, cloning, and proposals to perfect human beings by genetic engineering. These things were not mentioned under the same heading in the 1990 pastoral message on Rerum Navarum. 
including them in the 1998 statement, sends an important message about what cannot be tolerated in any society that aspires to promote human dignity. Now, if Catholics are going to learn more about Catholic social teaching, the usual social justice paradigm most often used by the bishops, social activists, and academics needs to be supplemented in a number of ways. First, it must be taught in season and out of season that the knowledge and practice of the faith as a whole is the indispensable condition for the reception and practice of Catholic social teaching. There simply is no substitute for wisdom and virtue in the citizens of a nation. Why this point is not readily understood or accepted in Catholic circles can be explained by the strong influence of modern political philosophy on those who shape Catholic opinion in the United States. A second prerequisite for the renewal of Catholic social teaching is a thorough explanation of all its major themes in dialogue with the disciplines that are an essential part of a liberal education, especially political philosophy. Now, in order to present the Catholic social teaching, I propose to lecture on 12 different themes. Now, some of these themes will only be addressed in the written text, and they are as follows, these themes. One, the dignity and relational character of the human person. Two, the meaning of the common good. Three, seeking the common good through virtue. Four, justice and social justice. Five, the dependence of the common good on public policy, civil society, and law. Next, Catholic social thought, bioethics, and the biomedical project, or the culture of life versus the culture of death work and the just wage, natural law and human rights, Catholic social teaching and the foreign policy of the nation, the agreement and tension between Catholic social teaching and American liberal democracy, the role of the church and grace, and finally, the role of education. Of course, six hours of lecture will not be able to do justice to all these themes. In the near future, I will publish a book on these themes through the press of the Catholic University of America. In the meantime, the written texts accompanying these lectures shall provide helpful reminders and supplements. Now, in order to facilitate the understanding of the principles and themes of Catholic social thought, my introduction will briefly explain the main difference between classical and modern political philosophy, and then discuss some of the subjects in Tocqueville's Democracy in America that affect the application of Catholic social thought in the United States. So, some comments on political philosophy. Against the widespread scholarly opinion that Western thought is continuous from Socrates to the 19th century, along with Ernest Fortin, I defend the view that modernity represents a break with classical philosophy and Christianity. Classical philosophy, writes Fortin, studies human behavior in the light of virtue, and it claims to be able to show the way to these goals. It culminates in a discussion of the best life and on the political level of the best regime or the type of rule that is most conducive to the best life, end quote. The best life is the life of virtue, and the best regime promotes the practice of virtue in the lives of citizens. Good government then makes for good human beings. Of course, the converse is also true. The predominance of good human beings, especially among those who set the tone for society, makes for good government. Plato and Aristotle were well aware that the best regime would exist only in speech as a model for actual regimes to imitate as closely as possible. 
they knew that a great number of circumstances would have to be favorable for the emergence of good regimes, much less the best regime. Machiavelli was the first philosopher to break with the classical view. A passage from chapter 15 of The Prince reveals his quarrel with the classical orientation. Quote, and many have imagined republics and principalities that have never been seen or known to exist in truth. For it is so far from how one lives to how one should live that he who lets go of what is done for what should be done learns his ruin rather than his preservation. For a man who wants to make a profession of good in all regards must come to ruin among so many who are not good. And Machiavelli's quotation. What has never existed in reality is, for example, the best regime, as described by Plato in the Republic. The ideal cannot be realized because most people do not seek excellence as they ought. Seeing things the way they are, Machiavelli proposes a political philosophy that abandons the ideal and takes its bearings by the way most people tend to behave most of the time. In line with this new orientation, Machiavelli proposes a new ought. Henceforth, rulers should not rule in such a way as to help people live as they ought in some ideal sense. Rather, they ought to be good or bad according to the needs of the situation. In other words, they should not hesitate to use evil means in order to achieve decent political goals. Now, the form in which the trend inaugurated by Machiavelli became respectable and attractive was through the invention of universal natural rights by Thomas Hobbes and their elaboration by John Locke. The latter proposed a beguiling alternative to the classical position that only the practice of virtue could bring about harmony between the individual and society or between self-interest and the common good. Locke held that things could be so arranged in society that unlimited appropriation with no concern for the need of others would be true charity. The key is to unleash people's acquisitive passions. Even if entrepreneurs are focused exclusively on their own well-being, their genius creates many well-paying jobs for others. In Locke's perspective, unlimited acquisitiveness is more effective in promoting the common good of society than moderation or charity because it is more reliable. Simply by pursuing their own selfish goals, people automatically contribute to the realization of the common good. Now, Locke's political philosophy is largely responsible for the acceptance of natural rights doctrines. Locke convinced people that they are by nature free and equal and have rights to life, liberty, and property. I believe that looking at life through the prism of rights initiated a quiet revolution in the way people understood the purpose of their own lives as well as the end of society. It was a quiet revolution because many citizens, including church leaders, do not realize that rights are not simply another way of talking about classical virtue or the teaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, the doctrine of rights presupposes an understanding of human nature, which is no longer defined in terms of its highest aspirations, but rather assumes that people cannot really rise above preoccupation with their own interests. The language and perspective of rights then constitutes a sharp break with the idealism of the ancients. Ernest Fortin summarizes this shift in perspective in a way that illustrates the difference between ancients and moderns. Quote, the passage from natural law to natural rights and later, once nature had fallen into disrepute, 
human rights represents a major shift in our understanding of justice and moral phenomena generally. Prior to that time, the emphasis was on virtue and duty, that is, to what human beings owe other human beings or to society at large, rather than on what they can claim from them. In the few minutes that remain, I would like to examine some of Tocqueville's thoughts on America. One of Tocqueville's main points is that democracy is not a neutral regime. By its nature, it promotes both a certain way of looking at things and even a way of life. For example, Tocqueville argues that the power of the majority is not only predominant, but irresistible. Once the majority makes up its mind on any particular question, there are, so to say, no obstacles which can retard, much less halt its progress and give it time to hear the wails of those it crushes as it passes. The consequences of this state of affairs are fate-laden and dangerous for the future. Tocqueville fears that Americans will give up thinking, even accept their religion as a common opinion, rather than as revealed by God, and ultimately conform their way of thinking and acting to the reigning public opinions. In other words, they will take their bearings by what is powerful in the culture and ascribe normative character to the spirit of the age. In a section entitled, The Power Exercised by the Majority in America Over Thought, Tocqueville makes one of the most shocking statements of his book. Quote, I know no country in which, generally speaking, there is less independence of mind and true freedom of discussion than in America. Then he adds, there is no freedom of the mind in America. Of course, these statements logically follow from Tocqueville's observations about the power and influence of majority opinion. How can there be independent and free minds when majority opinion dictates how individuals ought to look at things? How can freedom be assured when untutored subjective wills are more likely to give rise to majority opinion than objective truth? Not the truth cannot enter into the formation of majority opinion and thus guide the exercise of freedom. But that depends especially on the success of religious leadership, real religious conversion, and various kinds of political and civic initiatives. Now, how religion guides and moderates is neatly summarized in this oft-quoted sentence from Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Quote, religion, which never intervenes directly in the government of American society, should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions. For although it did not give the American people the taste for liberty, it singularly facilitates their use thereof." End quote. Even though the law allows them to do most everything, religion prevents them from imagining and forbids them to dare. In particular, religion moderates the love of material things and the desire to be sovereign, promotes its adherence to have common bonds and to be in solidarity with others. It regulates family life, especially through the influence of the woman, and thereby has an immense influence on society and the state. So religion is very useful for the preservation of democracy. But as a French political theorist, Pierre Manet rightly notes, quote, the religion of the Americans loses its utility proportional to their attachment to it for reasons of utility. 
Now, while Tocqueville's analysis of American democracy is very perceptive and still most relevant, Catholicism, in some important ways, doesn't fit his description of religion in America. Tocqueville believes that all religions are necessarily transformed by democracy so as to suffer some significant loss. I and many others would grant that Catholicism in America is affected by public opinion, the political correctness of the more educated classes and the deviations of contemporary philosophy previously mentioned. To see that influence, an interested observer could simply note the following. The resistance in Catholic universities to Pope John Paul II's ex corde ecclesiae in the name of academic freedom and institutional autonomy. The generation of a dissenting moral theology partially grounded in historicism and modern philosophies of will and the widespread ignorance of the contents of the faith, especially among the young, resistance to the new catechism of the Catholic Church because of its emphasis on content as opposed to experience, and fairly widespread acceptance of abortion, euthanasia, contraception, and divorce, abuses in the liturgy, etc. Now, although Americans tend to understand freedom more in relation to rights than to truth, they are not impervious to Pope John Paul II's argument that real freedom depends on knowing and living the truth about God and man. We must grant that the common understanding of rights in America is not usually linked to a teaching on natural or supernatural ends, and therefore not to truth. As Professor Daniel Mahoney of Assumption College puts it, human beings are rights-bearing individuals and hence worthy of respect. This is the unchallenged faith of modern democracy. We speak endlessly about human rights, but have difficulty saying very much about the nature of man, of this human being whose dignity we must respect, end quote. Nevertheless, even though the self-understanding of many Americans doesn't easily link rights to truth, their practice, so to speak, is better than their theory. In their daily lives, Americans will exercise their freedom in the light of some truths, although not always self-consciously. Because of the split in the American soul, I would affirm the following with Professor Mahoney. It is to be expected that the two notions of liberty that we have discussed, the self-sovereignty of man, or the exercise of autonomy without the summum bonum or highest good as the lodestar, and liberty under God will continue to compete for the loyalty of democratic citizens and for the souls of individual men and women. This division, that between understanding liberty as autonomy or understanding liberty under God, this division is what ultimately is at stake in our culture wars. Now, many Americans think that the separation of the church and the state in the United States means that the Catholic Church really has no business making suggestions for governance of the political order or even shaping the customs of life in society. But on the other hand, there is some explicit and much latent receptivity to the concept of liberty under God. If American Catholic universities could eventually find a way to educate their graduates to think intelligently about the moral and legal requirements of democratic regimes, 
then there could be enthusiastic responses to the proposals of Catholic social teaching for the constitution of a good democracy or liberty under God. I am afraid, however, that the prospects for that kind of education on a wide scale are still quite dim. My hope is that Ex Corde Ecclesiae will eventually be a catalyst to bring about the renewal of Catholic liberal education. Well, that's the end of my introduction to the themes of Catholic social teaching. And my hope is that everyone will see that the study of political philosophy, especially the difference between ancient and modern political philosophy, will be very important really to appreciate the themes of Catholic social teaching. So in our next lecture, we will address the topic of the dignity of the human person. And following that, we will try to determine uh, the meaning of the common good. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.